Good morning. It's good to be with you this morning. It's good to gather together. It's good to sing God's praises together, to worship His good name. Well, we are continuing our sermon series going through the book of Galatians, and our sermon text this morning is Galatians chapter 3, beginning in verse 23, and we're going to be going to uh, chapter 4, verse 7. And so far in our sermon series, we have seen a strong emphasis on the teaching or doctrine of justification, and we have seen a strong emphasis on this for good reason. When we talk about justification, we are speaking of the gracious act of God in declaring sinners to be innocent and righteous solely on the basis of faith in Christ. And in the first part of his letter, Paul labored to impress upon the churches in Galatia that we are justified, innocent, righteous in the eyes of the Lord, not by works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Now, some teachers had taught that in order to truly be a Christian, in order to truly belong to the people of God, you need to believe in Jesus and obey the law given by God through Moses with a particular emphasis on the need to practice circumcision. Paul wrote to passionately refute this teaching as it served to undercut the gospel and lead people away from the truth that we are saved by grace through faith in Christ and not works of the law. As Christians, we know that we don't come before the Lord and say, Lord, look what I have done. Look at how I've lived a good life. Look at how I've attended church. Look at how I've helped other people. Look at how much money I've given. Look at all these things I have done. No, we don't do that. We do not say that. Instead, as Christians, we know that we come before the Lord and we say, Lord, I have sinned. I have fallen short. I deserve no good thing from you. But I look to Christ. My hope and my trust is not in myself, not in my ability to do what is good and right in your eyes. Rather, I look to Jesus Christ and what he has done for me. We do not appeal to ourselves. We do not appeal to our own goodness. Rather, we appeal to Jesus Christ who lived the perfectly sinless life for us in our place and who died upon the cross to take our sins so that we can receive forgiveness and mercy and the gift of his righteousness. You see, our understanding of justification is essential for us in believing the gospel and applying the gospel to our hearts and lives. But we're going to see in our passage this morning that when it comes to the gospel, justification by faith is not the whole story, not even close. If the Lord were to only justify us by faith in Christ, if he were to only forgive us and declare us innocent and righteous, that would be immeasurably more than we deserve. If the sum total of the gospel was justification by faith, then the gospel would still be epic good news for sinners such as us. We would have all the motivation we need to sing God's praises for all of eternity. But as extraordinary as the doctrine of justification is, there's still more. It gets better. Our passage this morning will unpack some rich and glorious truth 
about the gospel and teach us some profound truth about who we are as Christians. Consider these questions. What does it mean to be a Christian? How would you answer that? How do we understand our identity and what does it mean regarding how we relate to God? What does it mean regarding how we relate to one another? You'll be hard-pressed to find questions more important than these ones, and our passage speaks powerfully to these questions. I'm going to read Galatians chapter 3, verse 23, through chapter 4, verse 7, and I encourage you to follow along. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time has come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. In verse 23, Paul continued his theme of what it means to be under the law. And when Paul referenced the law, he was referring to the commands and regulations that God gave to his people through Moses at Mount Sinai, which we read about in the book of Exodus. In our passage, Paul compared the law to a prison and a guardian. He first compared it to a prison as if those under the law are being held captive by a guard. Or as Phil Riken said, the law is a prison warden to keep us locked up in sin's penitentiary. He also compared the law to a guardian, which was an illustration from Greco-Roman life. Wealthy families had guardians or babysitters who chaperoned and protected their kids as well as provided them with discipline. And what he was describing was restraint, captivity, supervision, and discipline. The law revealed the will of God for his people and taught them how to live in a way that is pleasing to him. The law taught God's people how to practically love God and love their neighbor. The law taught people how to live in a way that was pleasing to God rather than adopting the sinful practices of their pagan neighbors. In that way, the law served to set God's people apart in the world so that they might reflect his holiness so that they might display his goodness and reveal his wisdom. God's people were meant to be set apart in the world 
And the law served that purpose. The law also taught them how to make sacrifices for sin, demonstrating the need for atonement. So the law taught God's people these things and then punished them for failing to do these things. But the Israelites, who we read about in the Old Testament, are not the only ones who have fallen short. The reality is that we've all broken God's law, and therefore we all fall under the condemnation of the law. We are all under the law, we are all under sin, and we are all under a curse. We are all of these things, that is, apart from Christ. Being under the law carried very negative connotations, but the period of the law was only meant to be temporary. The law was our guardian until faith came. Now, faith existed, of course, and before Jesus came into the world, many Old Testament saints are commended for their faith in Hebrews chapter 11. When Paul said, until faith came, he was referring to the coming of Christ, who is the object of our faith. Christ came into the world as the one in whom we place our faith so that we might be justified by faith. The law, did not just, the law did not justify God's people, but imprisoned everyone, for everyone has broken the law. But God's glorious and eternal purpose was that we would not be justified by works of the law, but by faith. The law served the temporary purpose of imprisoning us so that we would not look to ourselves, but to Christ in order to be saved, in order to be justified. As I said at the beginning, the law teaches us that we cannot look to ourselves, that we cannot save ourselves, that we cannot appeal to our own good deeds and actions for our, our salvation, for our justification. The law teaches us that we are sinners and therefore we need justification from another place. We need it to come from somewhere else. The law reveals this to us. Paul declared that those who have placed their faith in Christ are no longer under guardians, but are sons of God. As Christians, he declares that we are innocent and righteous, but that's not all. Not only does he declare that we are innocent and righteous, but he also welcomes us into his family as sons of God. Now, some translations will say sons and daughters of God or children of God, and it is true that we who believe in Christ are children of God, both sons and daughters. In John 1.12, we read, but to all who did receive him, that is Jesus, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. But the translations that take Paul's use of the word son in verse 26 and translate it as sons and daughters or children probably miss an important point Paul was making in this particular passage. The point in saying that you are all sons of God was not to exclude women or to say that maleness is better than femaleness. No, he was saying that everyone who places their faith in Christ becomes a child of God and receives the treatment and blessing of a son. In his time and culture, the family inheritance was reserved for sons, not daughters. But the radical and countercultural claim of the gospel is that everyone who places their faith in Christ receives the inheritance of a son. The wonderful inheritance of the Lord 
that he has for you does not depend on being male or female, but is guaranteed by the fact that you are in Christ. Being united to Christ by faith is the deciding factor and nothing else. He delights to give all his children, both sons and daughters, a glorious inheritance. He said, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, regardless of who you are. If you were baptized into Christ, then you have put on Christ. Then you belong to Christ. To be baptized into Christ speaks of a spiritual inward reality whereby we are fully united to Him. He is speaking of our spiritual union with Jesus. When we believe in Christ, when we are saved, we are fully united to Him. The act of being baptized is a powerfully symbolic demonstration of that spiritual reality. When we trust in Christ, we are united to Him in His death and resurrection. And when a person is baptized in water, we put them under the water to demonstrate their union with Christ in His death, and then graciously, graciously we bring them back up out of the water to demonstrate their union with Christ in His resurrection. Earlier in Galatians, Paul said, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. He described his crucifixion, I'm sorry, he described his conversion in terms of crucifixion and new life. And this is true of every Christian. Every Christian who believes in Christ is crucified with him. There is an identification with Christ. There is somehow, some way, a uniting to Christ in his crucifixion. But there is also new life. In Romans 6, 3-4, Paul wrote, do you, not, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. You see, when we become Christians, we are united to Christ in both his death and his resurrection. Being united to Christ in his death means that our sins, the punishment for our sins, was taken at the cross. It means that the cross of Jesus Christ was sufficient to take the punishment for all of our sins. When we are united to Christ in his death, our sins, past, present, and future, are paid for by his finished work at the cross. And we are also united with him in his resurrection. What that means is we have new life. Just as he rose from the grave to eternal life, so too we share in that new and eternal life. When we believe in Christ, we are united to him in his death and resurrection. Our sins are paid for and we have new life. And Paul spoke of our union with Christ like putting on clothes. When we are united to Christ, we are clothed in Jesus Christ. Think of the many ways we identify people by their clothing. When you go to a game, you can look at a player's jersey and say, he's a Seahawk. 
You can identify a soldier or officer by his or her uniform. What do you look for when you're in a store and you need help? You look for the person wearing the right clothes. In many cases, our clothing says something important about us. As Christians, the most important thing about us is that we have been united to Jesus Christ. Our identity is bound up in Jesus. We are clothed with him. He covers us. In many cases, we can identify something important about a person by their clothing. Let's pray that people will be able to identify the most important thing about us by the fact that we are clothed in Christ. On the one hand, we are clothed in Christ. If you have been united to Christ, then it is a fact that you are clothed in Christ. On the other hand, there is a continually putting on that must take place in our lives. There is a continual putting on of Jesus that must take place. Well, what does that mean? What does that look like? Well, I think we get a good picture of this in Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 17. We read, Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. I love how at the beginning of those verses, Paul says, put on then. We put these things on. As those who have put on Christ, we are continually putting on Christ. And this is what it looks like to be continually putting on Christ. This is the description of what it looks like to walk in Christ. The idea of putting on Christ also speaks to the closeness of our relationship with him. Whatever clothes you have on, go with you wherever you go. Our identity is bound up in Jesus, and we enjoy intimate fellowship with him. And because we who are Christians have been baptized into Christ and put on Christ, we enjoy a oneness in Christ. He not only saves us, but he also draws us into close fellowship with him. He draws us to himself so that we can enjoy him in all of his fullness. We can enjoy all the goodness that there is in Jesus Christ because we have this close and intimate fellowship with him that he initiates, that he secures, that he does for us. We put on Christ. We become like him. We enjoy intimate relationship with him. 
because we have been baptized into him. We enjoy a oneness with Christ. We also enjoy a oneness with our brothers and sisters who are also in Christ. Paul made a radical claim when he said, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. When he said this, he was not saying that there is no longer any distinction in the church. He was not saying, when you become a Christian, you're no longer ethnically Jewish, or you're no longer ethnically Greek, or you're no longer ethnically whatever your ethnicity is. He's no longer saying you're, you're no longer male or you're female. He's not saying those are unimportant distinctions. He's not saying that you all of a sudden stop becoming rich or poor when you become a Christian. No, he was not saying these things. He was not saying that in Christ all our distinctions are abolished. We are not all identical or interchangeable. But he was saying that your ethnicity, your gender, and your socioeconomic status are of no advantage regarding your standing before the Lord. We all come into the church through the same door. There is one door that we all must come through. And it does not depend on your ethnicity. It does not depend on your gender. It does not depend on your success in this world. The singular door to come through the church is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Every single one of us must come through the same door door. It also means that all the barriers that separate people in our divisive world come crashing down when we are in Christ. The church is meant to display a powerful unity amidst beautiful diversity. The church is diverse in many ways. And yet we are united in the fact that we are all sinners. We are all united in the fact that we cannot save ourselves. We are all united in the fact that we need a Savior. We are all united in the fact that God has provided a Savior and His name is Jesus. We are all united in the fact that we must believe in Jesus in order to be saved. No one has a leg up in the church. No one has an advantage. We're all sinners who must come humbly before the Lord, seeking salvation in Christ and in Christ alone. Therefore, what we have in common is immeasurably more important than our distinctions. It is a wonderful thing when people who are diverse in many different ways, come together and are united in Jesus Christ. It puts the power of the gospel on display to the world. When people who are different in many ways come together in unity, we demonstrate that Jesus is awesome. If you are in Christ, then you are included in Abraham's family as one of his descendants, and that means you are an heir of God's promise. For all of us who are in Christ, we belong to the same family. 
At the beginning of chapter 4, Paul continued to expand on how we have come to belong to the same family. He explained that a son who is an heir still must wait until the proper time to receive and enjoy the benefits of his inheritance. While he is a child, he is not free to do what he wants with his inheritance. During the time of his childhood, he is like a slave in the sense that he is under the control of someone else. The child must do what his guardians and managers tell him to do until the appointed time set by his father. A time comes when that changes. Similarly, we were children under the control of the elementary principles of the world until the time appointed by God the Father. When the time had come, he sent Jesus into the world. When Jesus came into the world, he was born of a woman, born under the law. And because of this, he is able to redeem those who are under the law. John Stott writes, The divinity of Christ... The humanity of Christ and the righteousness of Christ uniquely qualified him to be man's redeemer. If he had not been a man, he could not have redeemed men. If he had not been a righteous man, he could not have redeemed unrighteous men. And if he had not been God's son, he could not have redeemed men for God or made them the sons of God. Jesus is our redeemer and he is the only one who can redeem us. One definition of redeem reads, to cause the release of someone by a means which proves costly to the individual causing the release. And this is at the heart of the gospel. To redeem is to cause the release of someone by a means which proves costly to the individual causing the release. We are all under sin. We are all imprisoned by sin. We are all in desperate need of being released, of being set free, yet we cannot set ourselves free. We cannot release ourselves. We need someone else to cause our release. And the only way that Jesus can cause our release was in a way that proved exceedingly costly to himself. Friends, God made us in his image, to know him, to enjoy him, to glorify him. He created us to enjoy this close relationship and fellowship with him. And there is nothing better than we will ever experience than enjoying a close relationship with God. Yet we have all rebelled against this good purpose for our lives. We've all rejected him as our king. We have all said no to God through our sin. And therefore, we are all imprisoned by sin. But God, who is rich in mercy and kindness, has provided a way for us to be saved, for us to be redeemed. He has provided a way for our relationship with him to be restored. And he did so at great cost to himself. He did so by providing Jesus Christ as the Savior of the world. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. And that includes every single one of us in this room. It doesn't matter how you have lived your life. It does not matter what your ethnicity is. It doesn't matter how much success you've had. It doesn't matter 
your level of education. Those things don't matter when it comes to your need for a Savior. None of those things change your need for a Savior. You need to be saved. And Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners such as us. And he did so by living a perfectly sinless life. He perfectly obeyed the will of God for our sake. He resisted temptation unlike, unlike us. And then he went to the cross to take the punishment for our sins in our place so that we can receive forgiveness for our sins. And he rose from the grave and he conquered death. And he ascended into heaven where he's now seated at the right hand of the Father. And friends, he will come again. There will be a final judgment. And our only hope to escape the punishment we deserve at the final judgment is to take refuge in Christ. It's to believe in him and to be saved. Everyone who believes in Christ will be saved. When you believe in Christ, you do not need to fear that final judgment because you will not receive punishment. You will receive eternal life. You'll be welcomed into Christ's kingdom for all of eternity. If you're not a Christian, if you have not trusted in Christ for your salvation, our greatest hope and desire and prayer for you is that you will believe in Christ and be saved. You see, there is one door into the church, and that is through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Everyone who is a Christian has come through that door. We hope that you will enter through that door as well. The end of verse 5, we read that he redeemed us so that we might receive adoption as sons. We are redeemed. We are bought at a costly price, a price greater than we can comprehend, so that we can be adopted by God into his family. In verse 7, Paul summarized the point he was making. He said, so you are no longer a slave but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. We are not only justified by faith and redeemed from under the law, but we are also adopted into the family of God. If you are in Christ, God is your father. Jesus is your elder brother. And fellow Christians are your brothers and sisters in Christ. You belong to his family. In his book, Knowing God, the late J.I. Packer wrote, Adoption is the highest privilege that the gospel offers, higher even than justification. That justification is the primary and fundamental blessing of the gospel is not in question. Justification is the primary blessing because it meets our primary spiritual need. We all stand by nature under God's judgment. His law condemns us. Guilt gnaws at us, making us restless, miserable, and in our lucid moments afraid. We have no peace in ourselves because we have no peace with our maker. So we need the forgiveness of our sins and assurance of a restored relationship with God more than we need anything else in the world. And this the gospel offers us before it offers us anything else. But that is not to say that justification is the highest blessing of the gospel. Adoption is higher because of the richer relationship with God that it involves. Justification meets our primary and fundamental need. It is our most pressing need. 
we might think something else is our greatest need in life. If I only had this, I just need this, then it will all be good. Then I'll be happy. But the gospel reminds us that our primary and our fundamental, our most pressing need is the need to be justified, to be forgiven of our sins. I think about the time when Jesus encountered a man who was paralyzed. You can read about this story in Mark 2 and Luke 5. There was a man who was paralyzed and had friends bring him to Jesus. Clearly, the word about Jesus was spreading. The word about Jesus was spreading. He was some sort of miracle worker. He could heal people of all kinds of diseases and infirmities. And his friends brought him to Jesus. There was such a crowd in the house that they could not get in, so they went to the roof. They removed a tile from the roof, and they lowered him down through the roof in front of Jesus. Clearly, he was there to be healed of his paralysis. My guess is that he and his friends thought that was his biggest need. They were urgent about getting him to Jesus so that he could be healed, and understandably so. But when Jesus saw him, he said, Take heart, your sins are forgiven. He likely thought his biggest need was the need to be healed. But Jesus spoke to his greatest need by far. He spoke to his primary need, his most pressing need. Because consider this. What if he had healed the man that day, but not forgiven him of his sins? What would it matter now, right now, to that man, thousands of years later, as he was burning in hell, if he had gotten healed that day? Would he care now about that? No. His most pressing need by far was the need to be forgiven of his sins. And so Jesus spoke to his primary need first. Justification addresses our primary need. Just like the man who was paralyzed, our biggest need by far is our need to be forgiven of our sins and declared innocent in the eyes of the Lord. The Lord addresses our biggest need by justifying us by faith in Jesus and not works of the law. And then he goes much further by adopting us into his family, whereby we know him and enjoy his extraordinary love for us. If you are a Christian, how well do you know your father? I'm not asking you if you attend church regularly. I'm not asking you if you study your Bible diligently. I'm not asking you if you serve faithfully. I'm not asking you if you give generously. I'm not asking you if you are raising your kids the right way. I'm not asking those questions, not because they are necessarily bad questions, but I'm not asking those questions because the answers to those questions do not provide an answer for the question that I am asking, which is, how well do you know your heavenly Father? Do you know him personally and intimately? Do you call out to him, Abba, Father, do you know his love, the perfect love of a good father? He wants you to know him. He wants you to know his love. He wants you to know his care for you. He loves you like a perfect father. 
Brothers and sisters, we need to consider the wonderful implications of our adoption. Because we are in Christ, the answer to who we are is children of God our Father. That is who we are. We are children of our loving Father. Far too often we worry about what other people think about us. We are far too concerned with the opinions and judgments of man. We desire to be well thought of and praised, and we fear being criticized and judged. Our concern with the opinions of others can cause us tremendous amount of anxiety, can even lead to depression. It can be crippling. What we need to remember is that there is only one opinion that matters. The only judgment we need to be concerned with is the judgment of the righteous judge of all the earth. He is the one who knows all things. He is the one who sees all things. And he is the one to whom everyone must give an account. He is the only one who has the authority to cast us into hell. And he is the only one who has the power to satisfy the deepest longings of our souls, giving us inexpressible joy and peace. The only opinion that matters is the opinion of the one who is your heavenly father who has fully accepted you in Christ Jesus, who cares for you as his dearly loved child. You do not need to fear what other people think about you because there is only one opinion that matters. And you do not need to fear what the Lord thinks about you because he loves you. You can always go to him. You can always turn to him In your worst moments, in your worst moments of sin, in your darkest hour, you can go to him. His arms are always open to you. His love will never fail you. He will never give up on you. He will never abandon you. He will always be with you. He will always care for you. He will always welcome you. He will always forgive you. He will never, ever fail you. Moreover, you belong in his family. You don't have to wonder if you fit in. You don't have to wonder if you have a place. You don't have to doubt your place in his family because of anything going on in your life. Whatever it might be, whatever you have done, however you're characterized, Whatever the world's view of you you might be, it does not matter. You belong in his family. When you are in Christ Jesus, you are a child of God, and you belong. On Thanksgiving, I went to West Seattle, my parents' house, the same house I grew up in, which is the same house my dad grew up in. Got to spend Thanksgiving with my mom and dad, my three older siblings, as well as my wife and three kids and my 10 other nieces and nephews. Good crew, good time, a little bit noisy. One of the things I appreciate is when we go there is that everyone there knows they belong. There's no question. No one feels like an outsider. We come and we belong. That's God's desire for us as a church family. That everyone would come knowing they belong, not feeling like an outsider, not questioning their place, not questioning their value. 
It's an understanding that we are all children of God, adopted into his family, and we belong. And because you belong to his family, you have many brothers and sisters in Christ. Our oneness in Christ grows our love and affection for each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. We don't need to compete with each other to receive love and attention from our Father because he gives it to all of us without limit. We can be happy. We can be happy when we see God blessing our brothers and sisters in Christ. We can take joy in the joy of our brothers and sisters in Christ because we know it's there for us too. It's not as though he blesses one, but not the other. We belong to his family. We have brothers and sisters in Christ. We don't need to compete with each other for the love of the Father. And because of our identity in Christ, we are free to love one another, serve one another, and actively work for the good of one another. We're free to do this. We don't need to prove ourselves. We don't need to prove that we belong. We can be secure in our identity as children of God. Who are we? We are united to Christ. We are justified, innocent and righteous in the eyes of the Lord. We are redeemed, bought at a costly price. We are adopted. We belong to our loving Heavenly Father. And we are heirs. We will inherit the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we rejoice in you. You are so good to us. Not only have you justified us by faith in Christ, you've also adopted us into your family. We are your children. We belong to you. You have given us a wonderful and glorious inheritance. You delight to do good to us. We pray that you would help us to know you, to know you personally and intimately. We pray that you'd help us to enjoy you, to be secure in you. We pray you'd help us to continually put on Christ. We thank you for this, Lord. We do pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.